0: morning again. Today we continue our mini-series that we call Grace Stories. And as I shared last week, one of the reasons we love to kick off a new ministry season with Grace Stories is because it sets the tone for community. It sets the tone for spiritual growth in Christ. It, it sets the tone for worship and, and everything we do as a worshiping community. These, these stories say in a very personal way, here's my brokenness, and it might evoke some sense of familiarity in your life as you think about your brokenness. And here is what God is doing to heal my brokenness. It's in process. It's not done. Uh, it's not tied up in a bow, neatly presented like a present from God. And these grace stories are call are a call to us to walk with each other on this journey of faith, following after Jesus without shame, in full honesty, full openness that brokenness and sin and guilt and shame afflict each of us to some degree. And so why hide it? Let's talk about it with each other and cultivate the humility of Jesus and set aside the pride of humanity. Every story has unique elements, but the roots are the same. Grace stories tend to bring about unity on one hand, and they tend to sharpen our focus on the same, at the same time. Unity because the struggles and pains that you hear about all too often sound very familiar. They, they're translatable. They're, they're easy to relate to. And they sharpen our focus because they help us to realize when we face those issues head on and not run away that the only hope that we have comes from the promise of God to make all things new through the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. He is at work through his spirit applying new life, resurrection life to his people as we trust in Jesus. And that gospel of Jesus Christ addresses our every struggle. This morning, Karen Jacobson is ready to share her grace story. Karen is not just the uber-competent, ever-present leader of children's ministry and Refuge 686. Like each of us, she's a sinner saved by grace. And Karen is a woman who struggles to reconcile her faith in God's promises with the circumstances of her life. Thanks, Karen.
1: Psalm eighty four ten through 12 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. God doesn't withhold good things from his children. But I've often wondered how this can be possible when my great story today is about singleness and all I've wished for is for God to write my life story with a husband, three kids, and maybe the white picket fence. But he hasn't done that yet. And he may never do that. For too many years of this struggle, it seemed to me that God was withholding a good thing from me. But what I'm finally beginning to learn after 15 years is that even though God is not writing that plot line into my story right now, he's still writing a good story. He isn't withholding a good thing from me. Instead, what he has for me right now at this very moment is good. But I have to trust him enough to see it as good and even more to view him as good. This lesson has been a long time in coming. When God initially laid it on my heart to share my grace story about singleness, I thought to myself, that's not a grace story at all. That thought was similar to how I viewed my struggle with singleness uh, for the longest time. For the first ten years of the struggle, I tried to convince myself that it really wasn't a valid struggle. It was just something that I should accept and just move on from, right? I mean, after all, I could change it, except that I couldn't. Finally, five years ago, when I couldn't talk about singleness without crying, I realized indeed it was a valid struggle that I definitely needed to deal with. And with God's help, my singleness has moved from being a struggle to a grace story, a story of God's work in my heart through a sometimes painful situation. And let me tell you, singleness can be a struggle, and it can sometimes be painful. I think you all know that I really love kids. (laughs) All of my life, I've dreamed about being a mother. I always envisioned being a mother alongside a husband. I used to think it didn't matter to me, I'm sorry, if I had biological children, because I've been passionate about adoption since I was 11. However, the closer I get to 40, and having a brother and sister-in-law who've just had a baby, has intensified the desire to have a baby that I thought was dormant in my life. It can be really hard. There have been Christmas Eve and Easter services where I've cried through church, because I've seen all the families come in with adorable children, all dressed up in their Sunday best. During different periods of, this, of time in the struggle, church was a lonely place. There was a dark period in the struggle when I couldn't talk or think about being single without crying, and I even considered antidepressants. It's not just the ache for children that's difficult. I have really wonderful friends and family. But it's challenging not to have the same person by your side to experience life or discuss difficult decisions with. I felt really alone when I was in Rwanda, when I was daily being bombarded with requests for money, school fees, or startup costs for a business. I didn't know who to give to or when to give when every single request was completely valid. And there was no spouse in my life to talk it over with because at the end of the day, I had to make those tough decisions on my own had some really wonderful experiences in life that I wouldn't trade for the world, but I have wished for someone to experience them with, both the good and the bad. At my best moments, I'm able to make a joke about my marital status. I used to do it all the time in Rwanda when a perfect stranger would get on the bus, sit next to me, and inevitably they would say, but why are you not married? My joking, but actually quite serious response was, you're going to have to ask God about that and ask God about it I have. My asking at times has bordered on accusing and blaming, but God hasn't answered in the way that I've wanted him to yet and hasn't yet written my life story in the way that I think he ought. Instead, God has answered me with what I didn't ask for but what I should have. What he has given me is a glimpse of himself and his character in the midst of the struggle. Finally, after 15 years, God is helping me see that helping me to see that he is good even when, and especially when, he doesn't give me the things that I want. He's lovingly exposed my sin and sense of entitlement. He's showing me how I viewed him incorrectly, how I viewed him as my genie, expecting him to do exactly what it was that I wanted, and then getting angry when he didn't. But most of all, God has been showing me that he is good and is actually giving me what is best. He isn't withholding a good thing from me at all. His best for me right now is singleness. Do I always feel that singleness is God's best for me right now? Most definitely not. It's still a struggle. It can be two steps forward and one step back. But God showing me His goodness and helping me to see my marital status as evidence of His goodness is a testament to God's working and grace in my life. I think that God has a sense of humor because, ironically, God turned my thinking on its head after one really bad first date last year. Normally, a date like that would have sent me into a tailspin where I rehashed every single conversation of the date in my mind and convinced myself it must have been something that I did or something that I said to make the date go wrong, or there must be some terrible flaw in me that caused this man not to like me. But in God's grace and mercy, that didn't happen. Rather, God began to show me all the wonderful gifts he gives me because I'm single. He helped me to appreciate the fact that my singleness allows me the ability to say yes to last-minute volunteering or ministry requests. He caused me to see that not having my own children to take care of gives me more time to serve on the board of my friend's ministry in Rwanda, be a volunteer tutor at a group foster home, and pursue hobbies and travel. He gave me eyes to see that while I don't have the three children that I wanted of my own in my life, I do have lots of children here and around the world whose lives I have the privilege of being a part of. God caused me to notice that my lack of children and a husband allowed me to serve as a missionary in Rwanda for three years and travel often for work. Most recently, God has opened my eyes to see that while I don't have the husband and kids I've always longed for, I have this rather large and wonderful church family who's willing to support me, show me love, and even help me paint and strip wallpaper in my house. Instead of seeing what I don't have, finally, after so many years of struggle, God is helping me to see what I do have which is a very rich and rewarding life. Has that made the desire to be married go away, or my ache to have a child disappear? No, it hasn't. But with God's help, I've finally been able to not only see my life story as good, but to see my heavenly Father as good. He's not holding out on me. Perhaps someday he'll decide that marriage is the best gift he can give me. I earnestly hope that day comes. But if, and until it does, slowly I'm learning to trust that what God has for me right now which is singleness, is his best for me. He's not withholding anything good for me. God, in his grace and mercy, is opening my eyes to see him as a generous, loving, and good God who is doing what is best for me, even when he doesn't write my life story the way I originally wanted it written. May God give us all the eyes to see that he is the best author and is writing a good story for all of us.
0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Karen. Thank you for the story that you're telling in her life, through her life. Thank you, Lord, in anticipation for all the ways that you will bring further healing and greater health and vitality to this family of God. I pray, praise you, Lord, that Karen can stand here and testify That you have enabled her to say, even still, God is good. Even though, even so, God is good and his gifts lack nothing. That is pure grace, Lord, that comes from you. We give you all the glory. We ask that you would take that, multiply it, use Karen and others' lives and cause these seeds of gospel sown this morning to bear a hundredfold crop. Provide your blessing on this child of yours, this friend of mine, this family member of ours, and um, enrich her life in so many ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Karen especially for giving a grace story on your birthday that doesn't happen very often. You feel free to ask her how old she is. She is 29, as she told us uh, again. But uh, we uh, do appreciate you, Karen, and the boldness and courage that you've displayed. I have um, shared this with just about every person who shares their grace story That I know God will use your offering, your courage to bring gospel renewal to lots of people. Uh, And I trust that that's happening even now as we process the boldness of our sister to get up here and share something quite vulnerable, uh, quite transparent that has been going on inside of Karen, perhaps unbeknownst to uh, many of us. This isn't some cathartic experience uh, where Karen just had to get things off her chest and there's psychological relief you know, like yelling in the middle of the forest in rage, getting it out of you or throwing a foam brick at the wall to kind of get the energy out, you know, and now it's, now it's there. It goes far deeper because Karen is testifying. That's why we uh, call these things testimonies, even though we use the label grace stories, because when you testify in court, for example, you are attesting to something that is true. You, you are saying before God, I, I know this to be the case. And Karen is testifying to the goodness of God in the face of circumstances that we might say would lead to a contrary conclusion. God uses that. God uses that to to shake us out of self-deception, dispel the illusions and fog of the messages of this world. We'll, we'll, We'll point to a couple of those as we go and say, God is good even still. So um, perhaps Karen's story is, is prompting you now or later to realize for the first time or more fully than ever before that God can bring gospel healing to your hurts and disappointments, that God is interested in exposing the idols of your heart because he loves you too much to allow you to continue to be enslaved by their false promises, and that God, yes, can bring great good out of your pain. And your brokenness. Uh, I want to briefly address uh, uh, three things. I want to look at the Apostle Paul's grace story, relate it to Karen's grace story, and then share some practical thoughts for us as a church family. Uh, First, Karen's grace story reminds me of something striking that that Paul shares with the Philippian church. He says this, chapter 4, verse 11 I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength, speaking of Christ there. This is striking. I, I, I use that word because we know from the, the rest of the Old, New Testament that Paul's life, the, the, the one writing these words saying, I, I can be content in any, in any and every situation, Paul's life was filled with all kinds of peril. Three shipwrecks, a stoning, lashes, a bunch of angry mobs chasing him, thrown in prison by the government, um, beatings. 2 Corinthians happens to um, describe a handful of these accounts, and we don't have time to get into all these passages, but I want to look at a few selectively and notice some gospel nuggets that explain how in the world the Apostle Paul, in the face of all of this adversity and persecution and suffering, could still affirm what uh, Karen shared with us, that God is good. Uh, By the way, uh, six of our growth groups this fall are following the sermons in their growth group uh, studies and discussing what the sermons are about, and today it'll be the grace story and this devotional, uh, and you'll have a chance to dig a little deeper into some of these passages in your material, but let me just highlight a few 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Paul describes despairing of life, and he says, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us, and He will continue to deliver us. Paul's basically saying struggle, persecution, physical danger to the point of death, it's okay, because we worship the God of resurrection, And there's no ultimate danger because I may die, but God will raise me up. You've heard the saying, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Paul would say, even what kills you (laughs) can sharpen your faith. Even what brings you to the point of death can remind you of the perfect promises of God because he's the one who raises the dead. Death is not the final word. God has that word. God has that prerogative. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul again mentions various sufferings, but then he says, We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. He keeps those intention constantly, and, and his sufferings are never separate from the sufferings of Jesus. He knows, who went through his agony. To the point of death in humiliation on the cross of Calvary. And Paul is saying here, if Jesus' life, resurrection, glorious life on Easter Sunday required that he go through the valley of the shadow of death, since we follow after our Savior, why do we expect that our lives would look any different? If glory is the goal... And if God says this is the path to glory and perfect fulfillment and satisfaction of our every desire, shouldn't we not only willingly follow but chase after it? Easier said than done. Paul the apostle is setting the tone for us. And and then uh, one last example In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He talks about sufferings as paradoxes. And here's a little sample. He says, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And we might say, single, with a powerful desire to have a husband and three kids, and yet continuing to trust in the goodness of God and the goodness of his plan, is a paradox. It makes no sense. It doesn't add up unless Karen and we, like the Apostle Paul, worship the God of the impossible, of resurrection, who has promised to make all things new, to satisfy your every desire, and to truly complete you in the purest, most intimate relationship with Jesus, whom the Bible calls our bridegroom, with the church all believers in Jesus Christ as the bride. That's what lies at the heart of Karen's grace story. Even though, she said, God is still writing a good story in my life. That's the gospel at work. God is still worthy of our trust, of our obedience, of our very lives, because He's given us His own Son in order to deliver on His greatest promises because resurrection means that any sense of loss will turn into great gain in the fulfillment of God's promises. Karen sent me a link to an article that really spoke to her, and uh, I want to share with you just an excerpt. This writer says, "'It's a tough pill to swallow when something you always assumed as a given turns out to be a maybe.'" I could have this slide, guys. "'A maybe not or a not yet.'" That's how a lot of single Christians feel about marriage, especially those who grew up being taught marriage is the ultimate aim of adulthood. What starts as an expectation for our future can grow into an attitude that God owes you something in lieu of signing pledges to wait for our spouse, which implies the promise of a spouse. She's talking about purity pledges throughout her youth and college years we should instead commit our hearts to trusting that God is good when things go as planned and when they don't. What we didn't always hear in those purity talks growing up was that the key to fulfillment is to focus on becoming the one God made us to be instead of finding the one God wants us to marry. It's a lesson that applies to 80, all of us, regardless of marital status, single, divorced, married, remarried. The key to fulfillment, biblically speaking, this is not just uh, one author's wisdom. She's reflecting the, the wisdom of God's Word, is to focus on becoming the one God made us to be instead of finding the dream job you feel like you deserve, the spouse you've always dreamed of the financial security that you crave, the physical health that everyone else around you seems to be enjoying but you don't because of your chronic conditions, whatever it may be, circumstantially, who has God made you to be? And can you learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want? Paul says, here's the secret, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. You remember that cheesy line, epically cheesy line Tom Cruise unleashed upon Renee Zellweger in um, Jerry Maguire? You complete me. He's crying. All the women are watching in the dining room. You complete me. It's a lie. (laughs) That's all too easy to believe. It's become so prevalent in our um, Hollywood romance culture, and it makes an idol out of another person. And that idol makes promises that it cannot keep. It cannot deliver on those promises. I won't even waste time talking about how you had me at hello (laughs) further uh, establishes crazy kind of expectations for relationships. Um, I'm not unromantic. You can ask Cedar if you don't believe me. I'm not being cynical about the best of human love. What I am saying is that God has answered Karen's prayers by revealing himself to her as the perfect spouse, the perfect spouse, the bridegroom, the lover of her soul. He's answered her prayers by exposing the idols of her heart. That's part of the transparency of her grace story. I I, I made idols out of these things, husband, three kids, white picket fence, and as I said earlier, God's love is too perfect to enable His daughter, His precious one, to remain ensnared by the, the siren call and false promises of these idols. And so God in His love very often exposes them and says, not those, they're nothing. Me, I'm everything for you. That's, uh, I, I, you have been created to be complete in me. And God is continuing to convince her that he alone is good and that his wisdom regarding her life is truly best. But you need to know this, and I'm confident because I've talked this through with Karen and prayed with her and shared life together that she would agree with this. You need to know this. Karen's faith in God's goodness is not rock solid. At at one point, she she was uh, worried about, and and very often grace stories people are are worried about, you know, is is this going to seem too neatly tied up? Is this going to preach? And uh, when I say Karen's faith in God's goodness is not rock solid, um, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. If it is, you hold her up on a pedestal far too much. And if you'd be surprised at uh, my lack of rock solid faith, You, you hold me up as well too high. But... Karen's faith and my faith and your faith have weak spots. There are sometimes breaches in her defense that enable the lies of the evil one to reach her ear and then penetrate her brain and get to her heart that lead to moments and stretches of self-pity and doubt and even anger at God. Some days, she says, she doesn't feel like God is worthy of her trust at all, but that's no different than what we spent our entire summer looking at. We we have called it the inspired songbook of the Bible, and throughout the summer series on the Book of Psalms, uh, I, I use this language. The, the, these are raw, unairbrushed, unvarnished accounts by real-life people in history describing their faith struggle in the context of a messed up world. This is Karen's life psalm. And these themes need to, we need to realize how easily these themes fit into our particular stories. Where are you, God? How long? Why them and not me in, in prosperity and blessing? Why me and not them in suffering? Yet, I will trust in you because you are and you have all that I need. Maybe you'd say that last refrain, that last conclusion is missing in my life. That's where you need to listen to a grace story and go to God's word and wrestle. Yell at God if you need to. Karen did. I have. The psalmists describe something that sure seems like yelling at God raw emotion and come to the conclusion through faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, whose life involved humiliation and darkness in the valley of the shadow of death and rising to new life on the third day. I want to close with just a few practical thoughts. What, what can we do as a church family? And uh, first, I, I want to speak to the church at large, regardless of marital circumstance, marital uh, Status. Don't treat a single person merely as someone who needs a spouse. Don't always ask, especially um, a a single adult, um, if they're dating, if they're seeing anybody. Is there anyone on the horizon? Um, Some of you are close enough that you have that chat, right? Uh, Two girlfriends talking about um, any potential guys out there. I'm I'm not saying get rid of that. I'm saying just be careful not to treat a single person solely as someone who is incomplete until they find someone and you're going to be their personal cupid. When you practice hospitality, try to always be including single persons and not just one so that they don't feel like they're the fifth wheel. I've heard that a lot. Um, When uh, when you're chatting in a group, be conscious of the constant pregnancy and baby and kids in school talk that can be all-encompassing. And e- even I am thinking, can we talk about anything else <laughs> sometimes? You know, Be conscious of it. Be conscious of the, the context, of, of the audience. Um, and this is a good rule of thumb with anyone, of any background, um, of any faith. As you are called to engage in relationship, ask good questions. Inquire of their lives. That's the best way to to communicate without these words to someone that you you care. You're you're interested in who they are, not just spouting off about all of your accomplishments and your hobbies and your interests or or gossiping about other people or, or, you know, uh, presidential candidates, but ask them good questions. Get to know them. Um, one last thought, include uh, maybe a, a twist on a hospitality thought, but include a single person in your activities. Uh, treat them as an extended member of your family. And so if you're going apple picking, if you're going out to dinner, trying a new restaurant, planning a girls' night uh, in the city, or heading down to the shore, or, or whatever you may be doing, in- include single persons as uh, uh, um, an honorary member of your extended family and live life together. You need that kind of community outside of your little circle, and they need to be included in your own community. A few thoughts for single people. I'll put them under three scenarios that I see and and very often end up addressing um, in counseling, sometimes as crises. Um, Category number one, you end up um, marrying just to marry. That's at least the trajectory, if you're still single. And it's often fear-driven by this thought, what if I don't find anyone else? What if this is my only chance? I'm going to grab it and not let go. And when there's no spiritually mature counsel available, or worse, when one or both parties ignore the counsel, the path ahead most often will involve spiritual unhealth and a relational mess. Some of you are avoiding marriage or rejecting potential spouses for the wrong reasons. Fear of commitment is often driven by this thought, this question, what if I find someone better? And the someone better is often driven by unrealistic Hollywood fairy tale expectations of beauty, brains, and brawn the best that the world has to offer, the most beautiful people, the most sharp people, the, 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 the most you know, vibrant and athletic and capable people. It's also driven by the influence of pornography. Airbrushed women with impossible dimensions, always sexually interested, end up distorting, wildly distorting the expectations of, of not just young men, but also uh, women. Uh, others of you want to marry. And uh, there have not been any suitable possibilities. I say suitable because suitable needs to start as uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ with a faith match to not be unequally yoked, as Paul puts it in Second Corinthians. And then uh, suitability includes the lesser compatibility factors like relative age and interests and personalities and callings and, and mutual attraction. Karen's story has a lot to say about the secret of contentment about the influence of the future spouse idol that can lead to bitterness and depression and the blindness that leads to poor decision-making. For some in this category, life becomes all too much about the chase. And so some obsess about looks, have to get to the gym, have to eat right in order to watch the weight and wear the right clothes and manage the social calendar and never respond to any RSVPs because something better might come up and I can't miss that opportunity because the idol beckons all the time and makes promises that in reality will never be kept. And other aspects of life that are important get crowded out. Like Karen pointed to, kingdom service, community, uh, non-romantic friendships. And last thought, realize too... For everybody, that making a spouse an idol, whether in potential or in actuality, is just as common inside a marriage as it can be outside a marriage. And inside a marriage, making your spouse an idol, you might not even put them on a pedestal. You might just expect satisfaction and fulfillment to come from them, and they're not doing a good enough job. They might be in the doghouse and still be your idol. And inside a marriage, it leads to even greater devastation because it involves another person and very often involves the next generation. Divorce, the fallout, uh, the, the, the raw bitterness and emotions that come from that kind of mess. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Every heart Longing for our King, we sing, Even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. Have you heard that song? It's a passion worship song. Even so, come. And and this imagery and the language are um, using the last chapters of the book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And it's no surprise that the language is marital. And this phrase, even so, even still, Asaph, I I paraphrase Psalm 73, yet, um, or uh, till I enter the sanctuary, there's this contrast, there are these paradoxes of the Christian life that Paul pointed to, There's, there's uh, there's this thought that it makes no sense when we add things up, and yet the people of God throughout Um, The the history of the church have said from um, the Apostle John's words, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come show us that you are the fulfillment of our every heart's desire. Come show us that through faith in you, Lord Jesus, we are made complete, truly complete, fully satisfied, made one with you. That is what each of us has been created for. May we chase after it. Single, married, divorced. May we chase after it and discover what God has for us in his perfect promises. Let's pray. Lord, we do say with the church of old, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Finish what you've started. Eliminate every source and possibility of distraction from the perfect love that you provide in Jesus. Burn it up. Burn up every idol, every thought in our hearts and minds that would be looking to something or someone other than you for our fulfillment and our happiness, our joy, our belonging, our intimacy, our meaning, and show us as Jesus will be revealed one day for all to see that he is our All in all, we praise you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.